sign language, and mythology as primitive modes of representation. Book 1 by Gerald Massey Narrated by Graham Dunlop Edited by Darren Grimes It may have been a million years ago that light was kindled in the old dark land, with which the illumined scrolls are all aglow, that Egypt gave us with her mummied hand. This was the secret of that subtle smile, inscrutable upon the Sphinx's face. Now told from sea to sea, from isle to isle, the revelation of the old dark race. Theirs was the wisdom of the bee and bird. Ant, tortoise, beaver, working human-wise, the ancient darkness spake with Egypt's word. Hers was the primal message of the skies. The heavens are telling nightly of her glory, and for all time earth echoes her great story. Prefatory I have written other books, but this I look on as the exceptional labor which has made my life worth living. Comparatively speaking, A Book of the Beginnings, London, 1881, was written in the dark. The Natural Genesis, London, 1883, was written in the twilight whereas ancient Egypt has been written in the light of day. The earlier books were met in England with the truly orthodox conspiracy of silence. Nevertheless, 4,000 volumes have got into circulation somewhere or other, up and down the reading world, where they are slowly working in their unacknowledged way. Probably the present book will be appraised at home in proportion as it comes back piecemeal from abroad, from Germany or France, or maybe from the country of the rising sun. To all dear lovers of the truth, the writer now commends the verifiable truths that wait for recognition in these pages. Truth is all potent with its silent power, if only whispered, never heard aloud, but working secretly, almost unseen save in some excommunicated book. Tis as the lightning with its errand done before you hear the thunder. For myself, it is enough to know that in spite of many hindrances from straitened circumstances, chronic ailments, and the deepening shadows of encroaching age, my book is printed, and the subject matter that I cared for most is now entrusted safely to the keeping of John Gutenberg on this my nine-and-seventieth birthday. Sign Language and Mythology as Primitive Modes of Representation Book One The other day a lad from London, who had been taken to the seaside for the first time in his life, was standing with his mother looking at the rolling breakers tossing and tumbling in upon the sands, when he was heard to exclaim, Oh, mother, who is it chucking them heaps of water about? This expression showed the boy's ability to think of the power that was doing it in the human likeness. But then, ignorant as he might be, he was more or less the heir to human faculty as it is manifested in all its triumphs over external nature at the present time. Now it has been, and still is, a prevalent and practically universal assumption that the same mental standpoint might have been occupied by primitive man and like a question asked in the presence of the same or similar phenomena of physical nature. Nothing is more common or more unquestioned than the inference that primitive man would or could have asked, who is doing it? And that the who could have been personified in the human likeness. Indeed, it has become an axiom with modern metaphysicians and a postulate of the anthropologists that, from the beginning, man imposed his own human image upon external nature that he personified its elemental energies and fierce physical forces after his own likeness. Also, that this was in accordance with the fundamental character and constitution of the human mind. To adduce a few examples taken almost at random, David Hume declares that there is a universal tendency among mankind to conceive all beings like themselves, in support of which he instances the seeing of human faces in the moon. Reed, on the active powers, fourth essay, says our first thoughts are that the objects in which we perceive motion have understanding and power as we have. 
Francis Bacon had long before remarked that we human beings set stamps and seals of our own images upon God's creatures and works. X history. Herbert Spencer argued that human personality applied to the powers of nature was the primary mode of representation, and that the identification of this with some natural force or object is due to identity of name. Data of Sociology, Chapter 24, 184. In early philosophy throughout the world, says Mr. Tyler, the sun and moon are alive, and as it were human in their nature. Professor Max Muller, who taught that mythology was a disease of language, and that the myths have been made out of words which had lost their senses, asserts that the whole animal world has been conceived as a copy of our own, and not only the animal world, but the whole world of nature was liable to be conceived and named by an assimilation to human nature. Science of Thought, page 503. And such was the propensity in the earliest men, of whom we have any authentic record, to see personal agency in everything, that it could not be otherwise, for there was really no way of conceiving or naming anything objective except after the similitude of the subjective or of ourselves. Ib, page 495. Illustration of this modern position might be indefinitely multiplied. The assumption has been supported by a consensus of assertion. And here, as elsewhere, the present writer is compelled to doubt, deny, and disprove the popular postulate of the accepted orthodox authorities. That, said the lion, is your version of the story. Let us be the sculptors, and for one lion under the feet of a man you shall see a dozen men beneath the pad of one lion. Myth-making man did not create the gods in his own image. The primitive divinities of Egypt, such as Sut, Sebek, and Shu, three of the earliest, were represented in the likenesses of Hippopotamus, the crocodile, and the lion, whilst Happy was imaged as an ape, Anup as a jackal, Ta as a beetle, Tot as an ibis, Seb as a goose. So was it with the goddesses. They are the likenesses of powers that were superhuman, not human. Hence, Apt was imaged as a water cow, Hecat as a frog, Tefnut as a lioness, Surk as a scorpion, Ranut as a serpent, Hathor as a fruit tree. A huge mistake has hitherto been made in assuming that the myth-makers began by fashioning the nature powers in their own human likeness. Totemism is formulated by myth-making man with types that were the very opposite of human, and in mythology, the anthropomorphic representation was preceded by the whole menagerie of totemic zootypes. The idea of force, for instance, was not derived from the thews and muscle of a man. As the Kamite sign language shows, the force that was chucking them heaps of water about was perceived to be the wind, the spirit that moved upon the face of the waters from the beginning. This power was divinized in Shu, the god of breathing force whose zootype is the lion as a fitting figure of this panting power of the air. The element audible in the howling wind, but dimly apprehended otherwise, was given shape and substance as the roaring lion in the substitution of similars. The force of the element was equated by the power of the animal, and no human thews or sinews could compare with those of the lion as a figure of force. Thus the lion speaks for itself, in the language of the ideographic signs. And in this way, the gods and goddesses of ancient Egypt were at first portrayed as superhuman powers by means of living superhuman types. If primitive man had projected a shadow of himself upon external nature to shape its elemental forces in his own image, or if the unfeatured vasts had unveiled to him any likeness of the human face, then the primary representation of the nature powers, which became the latter divinities, ought to have been anthropomorphic, and the likeness reflected in the mirror of the most ancient mythologies should have been human. Whereas the powers and divinities were first represented by animals, birds, and reptiles, or, to employ a word that includes all classes, they were portrayed by means of zootypes. The sun and moon were not considered human in their nature. When the one was imaged as a crocodile, a lion, a bull, a beetle, 
or a hawk, and the other is a hare, a frog, an ape, or an ibis, as they are represented in the Egyptian hieroglyphics by means of the zootypes. Until Harur, the elder Horus, had been depicted as the child in place of the calf or lamb, the fish or shoot of the papyrus plant, which was comparatively late, there was no human figure personalized in the mythology of Egypt. Primitive or Paleolithic man was too beggarly poor in possessions to dream of shaping the superhuman powers of nature and the human likeness. There is one all-sufficient reason why he did not. He simply could not. And it is precisely because the makers of the myths had not the power to animate the universe in their own likeness that we have the zoomorphic mode of representation as the sign language of totemism and mythology. On every line of research, we discover that the representation of nature was pre-anthropomorphic at first, as we see on going back far enough, and on every line of descent, the zoomorphic passes ultimately into the human representation. Modern metaphysicians have so developed the faculty of abstraction and the disease of subjectivity that their own mental operations offer no true guidance for generalizations concerning primitive or early man, who thought in things and almost apprehended with the physical sense alone. They overlook the fact that imaging by means of object pictures preceded the imaging so often ascribed to primitive men. These did not busy themselves and bothered their brains with all sorts of vagrant fancies instead of getting an actual grasp of the homeliest facts. It was not primitive man, but two German metaphysicians who were looking out of window at the falling shower of rain, when one of them remarked, Perhaps it is I who am doing that. Or I, chimed in the other. The present writer once had a cat before whom he placed a sheet of polished tin. The cat saw herself reflected as in a mirror, and looked for a short time at her own image. So far as sight and appearance went, this might have been another cat. But she proceeded to apply the comparative process and test one sense by another, deliberately smelling at the likeness to find out if any cat was there. She did not sit down as a non-verifying visionary to formulate hypotheses or conjure up the ghost of a cat. Her sense of smell told her that, as a matter of fact, there was no other cat present. Therefore, she was not to be mizzled by a false appearance, in which she took no further interest. That, we may infer, was more like the action of primitive man, who would find no human likeness behind the phenomena of external nature. Indeed, man was so generally represented by the animals that the appearance could be mistaken for a primitive belief that the animals were his ancestors. But the powers first perceived in external nature were not unlike the human. They were very emphatically and distinctly more than human, and therefore could not be adequately expressed by features recognizable as merely human. Primitive men were all too abjectly helpless in presence of these powers to think of them or to conceive of them in their own similitude. The one primordial and most definite fact of the whole matter was the distinct and absolute unlikeness to themselves. Also, they themselves were too little the cause of anything by the work of their own hands to enter into the sphere of the causation mentally. They could only apprehend the nature forces by their effects and try to represent these by means of other powers that were present in nature, but which were also necessarily superior to the human and were not the human faculties indefinitely magnified. The human being could only impress his own image on external nature in proportion to his mastery over natural conditions. He could not have figured the thunderbolt as a stone axe in the hands of a destroying power until he himself had made and could wield the axe of stone as the weapon of his own power. But he could think of it in the likeness of the serpent already known to him in external nature as a figure of fatal force. An ignorant explanation of the Egyptian sign language was begun by the Greeks, who could not read the hieroglyphics. It was repeated by the Romans, and has been perpetuated by classical scholars ever since. But as the interpreter of Egypt, that kind of scholastic knowledge is entirely obsolete. Ignorance of primitive sign language has been and is a fertile source of false belief. For example, Juvenal asks, 
Who does not know what kind of monsters Egypt insanely worships? Sat 15.1 And having seen or heard of the long-tailed ape in an Egyptian temple, the satirists assumed without question that this animal was set up as an object of worship. He did not know that the ape itself was the worshipper, as an image in sign language, and as the saluter of the gods. Annie, the name of this particular ape, denotes the saluter, and to salute was an Egyptian gesture of adoration. The ape, or Cynesophallus, with its paws uplifted, is the typical worshipper as saluter of the light. It was, and still is, looked upon in Africa generally as a pre-human moon worshipper, who laments and bewails the disappearance of its nightlight, and rejoices at the renewal and return of that luminary. Hor Apollo, B. 114, also Captain Burton in a letter to the author. In the vignettes to the ritual, Annie the ape is the saluter of the rising sun, that is, of Ra, upon the Mount of Sunrise. One of the most profound perversions of the past has been made in misapprehending this primitive sign language for what it was designated, worship, whether as sun worship or serpent worship, tree worship or phallic worship. The tree, for example, is a type, but the type is not necessarily an object of worship, as misunderstood by those who do not read the types when these are rooted in the ground of natural fact. The forest folk were dwellers in the trees, or in the bush. The tree that gave them food and shelter grew to be an object of regard. Hence it became a type of the Mother Earth as the birthplace and abode. Hence Hathor was the hut or house of Horus, Har, and the tree. But worship is a word of cant employed by writers who are ignorant of sign language in general. Such phrases as stock and stone worship explain nothing and are worse than useless. The mother and child of all mythology are represented in the tree and branch. The tree was a type of the abode, the roof tree, the mother of food and drink, the giver of life and shelter, the wet nurse in the dew or rain, the producer of her offspring as the branch and promise of periodic continuity. Was it the tree then the Egyptians worshipped, or the giver of food and shelter in the tree? On the Apis steel in the Berlin Museum, two priests are saluting the Apis bull. This is designated Apis worship, but the Apis carries the solar disk betwixt its horns. This is also being saluted, which then is the object of worship. There are two objects of religious regard, but neither is the object of adoration. That is the God in spirit who was represented as the soul of life in the sun and in the tree also by the fecundating bull. In this and a thousand other instances, it is not a question of worship, but of sign language. Nor did mythology spring from 50 or 100 different sources, as frequently assumed. It is one as a system of representation, one as a mold of thought, one as a mode of expression, and all its great primordial types are virtually universal. Neither do the myths that were inherited and repeated for ages by the later races of men afford any direct criterion to the intellectual status of such races. A mythical representation may be savage without those who preserve it being savages. When the Egyptians in the time of Yunus speak of the deities devouring souls, it is no proof of their being cannibals at the time. Mythology has had an almost limitless descent. It was in a savage or crudely primitive state in the most ancient Egypt. But the Egyptians who continued to repeat the myths did not remain savages. The same mythical mode of representing nature that was probably extant in Africa 100,000 years ago survives today amongst races who are no longer the producers of the myths and Mark Chen that they are of the language itself. Egyptian mythology is the oldest in the world and it did not begin as an explanation of natural phenomena, but as a representation by such primitive means as were available at the time. It does not explain that the sun is a hawk or the moon, a cat, or the solar god, a crocodile. Such figures of fact belong to the symbolical mode of rendering in the language of animals or zootypes. No better definition of myth or mythology could be given than is conveyed by the word sem in Egyptian. 
This signifies representation on the ground of likeness. Mythology, then, is representation on the ground of likeness, which led to all forms of sign language that could ever be employed. The matter has been touched upon in previous volumes, but for the purpose of completeness, it has to be demonstrated in the present work that external nature was primarily imaged in the pre-human likeness. It was the same here as in external nature. The animals came first, and the predecessors of man are primary in sign language, mythology, and totemism. It is quite certain that if the primitive method had been conceptual, and early man had possessed the power to impose the likeness of human personality upon external phenomena, it would have been in the image of the male, as a type or in the types of power, whereas the primal human personification is in the likeness of the female. The great mother, as the primal parent, is a universal type. There could be no divine father in heaven until the fatherhood was individualized on earth. Again, if primitive men had been able to impose the human likeness on the mother nature, the typical wet nurse would have been a woman. But it is not so. The woman comes last. She was preceded by the beast itself, the sow, the hippopotamus, or lioness, and the female form that wears the head of the zootype, the cow, frog, or serpent, on the body of a divinity. Moreover, the human likeness would, of necessity, have included sex. But the earliest powers recognized in nature are represented as being of no sex. It is said in the Akkadian hymns, female they are not, male they are not. Therefore, they were not imaged in the human likeness. The elements of air, earth, water, fire, darkness, and light are of no sex, and the powers first recognized in them, whether as destructive or beneficent, are consequently without sex. So far from nature having been conceived or imaged as a non-natural man in a mask, with features more or less human. However, hugely magnified, the mask of human personality was the latest that was fitted to the face of external nature. Masks were applied to the face of nature in the endeavor to feature and visibly present some likeness of the operative elemental forces and manifesting powers of air, fire, water, earth, thunder, and lightning darkness and dawn, eclipse and earthquake, sandstorm or the drowning waters of the dark. But these masks were zoomorphic, not human. They imaged the most potent of devouring beasts, most cunning of reptiles, most powerful birds of prey. In these monstrous masks, we see the primal powers of nature, all at play, as in the pantomime, which still preserves a likeness to the primordial representation of external nature that is now chiefly known under the names of mythology and totemism. The elemental powers operant in external nature were superhuman in the past, as they are in the present. The voice of thunder, the death stroke of lightning, the coup de soleil, the force of fire, or of water in flood and the wind in a hurricane were superhuman. So of the animals and birds, the powers of the hippopotamus, crocodile, serpent, hawk, lion, jackal, and ape were superhuman, and therefore they were adopted as zootypes and as primary representatives of the superhuman powers of the elements. They were adopted as primitive ideographs. They were adopted for use and consciously stamped for the representative value, not ignorantly worshipped, and thus they became the coins, as it were and the current medium of exchange for the expression of primitive thought or feeling. Sign language includes the gesture signs by which the mysteries were danced or otherwise dramatized in Africa by the pygmies and bushmen, in totemism, in fetishism, and in hieroglyphic symbols. Very little of which language has been read by those who are continually treading water in the shallows of the subject without ever touching bottom or attaining foothold in the depths. It is by means of sign language that the Egyptian wisdom keeps the records of the prehistoric past. The Egyptian hieroglyphics show us the connection betwixt words and things, also betwixt sounds and words, in a very primitive range of human thought. There is no other such record known in all the world. They consist largely of human gesture signs and the sounds first made by animals, such as ba or the goat. Meow for the cat, Sue for the goose, and Foo for the Serasti snake. 
But the Camite representation by means of sign language had begun in Inner Africa before the talking animals, birds, and reptiles had been translated into the forms of gods and goddesses by the dwellers in the valley of the Nile. The living ideographs or zootypes were primary and can be traced to their original habitat and home and to nowhere else upon the surface of our earth. The cow of the waters there represented the earth mother as the great bringer forth of life before she was divinized as apt, the goddess in human guise with the head of a hippopotamus. The overseeing giraffe, or was it the okapi of Sut, the hawk of Horus, the calf ape of Tutten, the white vulture of Neith, the jackal of Anup, and 50 others were pre-extant as the talking animals before they were delineated in semi-human guise as gods and goddesses or elemental powers thus figured forth in the forms of birds and beasts or fish and reptiles. The zootypes were extant in nature as figures ready-modeled, pictures ready-made, hieroglyphics and ideographs that moved about alive, pictures that were earlier than painting, statues that preceded sculpture, living nature types that were employed when there was no others known to art. Certain primordial types originated in the old dark land of Africa. These were perfected in Egypt and thence dispersed about the world. Amongst them is the earth as solid ground amidst the water of surrounding space, or as the bringer forth of life, depicted as a water cow, possibly the cow of Kintu in Uganda, the dragon of darkness, or other wide-jawed swallower of the light that rose up from the abyss and coiled about the mount of earth at night as the devourer, the evergreen tree of dawn, preeminently African, that rises on the horizon or upon the mount of earth from out of the waters of space, the opposing elemental powers beginning with the twins of light and darkness who fought in earth and heaven and the netherworld, the great earth mother of the nature powers, the seven children of her womb, and various other types that are in one origin and worldwide in their range. When the solar force was yet uncomprehended and the sinking sun could be imagined naturally enough by the beetle boring its way down through the earth, or by the tortoise that buried itself in the soil, also by the crocodile making its passage through the waters, or the golden hawk that soared up through the air. This was representing phenomena in external nature on the ground of likeness, when it could not be imaged directly by means of words. When it is held, as in Australia, that the lizard first divided the sexes, and that it was also the author of marriage, we have to ascertain what the lizard signified in sign language. And when we find that, like the serpent or the frog, it denoted the female period, we see how it distinguished or divided the sexes and in what sense it authorized or was the author of totemic marriage, because of its being a sign or symbol of feminine pubescence. It is said that by the Amazulu, that when old women pass away, they take the form of a kind of lizard. This can only be interpreted by knowing the ideographic value in the primitive system of sign language, in which the lizard was a zootype. The lizard appeared at puberty, but it disappeared at the turn of life, and with the old women went the disappearing lizard. The frog which transformed from the tadpole condition was another ideograph of female pubescence. This may be illustrated by a story that was told some time since by Miss Werner in the Contemporary Review, which contains a specimen of primitive thought and its mode of expression in perfect survival. It happened that a native girl at Blantyre Mission was called by her mistress, a missionary's wife, to come and take charge of the baby. Her reply was, Nechofulini is not there. She is turned into a frog. Werner, Contemporary Review, September, page 378. She could not come for a reason of tapu, but said so typically in the language of animals. She had made that transformation which first occurs when the young girl changes into a woman. She might have said that she was a serpent or a lizard or that she was in flower. But the frog that changed from a tadpole was also a type of her transformation. And she had figuratively become a frog for a few days of seclusion. Similarly, the member of a totem also became a frog a beetle, a bull, or bear as a mode of representation, but not because the human being changed into the animal, 
the same things which are said at a later stage by the ideographic determinatives in the Egyptian hieroglyphics had been expressed previously by the inner African zootypes or living beasts, birds, and reptiles, as may be seen in the stories told of the talking animals by the Bushmen. The original records will suffice to show that the physical agencies or forces first perceived were not conceived or mentally embodied in the human likeness, and that external nature offered no looking-glass for the human face. To take the very illustration adduced by Hume, the original man in the moon did not depend upon fancied resemblance to the human face. The Egyptian man in the moon, Tat or Tahuti, Greek Thoth, had the head of an ibis, or of the Cenocephalus. Both ibis and Cenocephalus were lunar types which preceded any human likeness, and these were continued as heads to the human figure after this had been adopted. The man in the moon who is Tat, or Kunsu, in Egypt, had a series of predecessors in the dog or Cenocephalus, the ibis, the beetle, the bull, the frog, and other ideographic figures of lunar phenomena. As natural fact, the ibis was a famous fisher of the Nile, and its familiar figure was adopted by a zootype of Tat, the lunar god. Where the moderns saw the new moon with the old moon in her arm, the Egyptians saw the ibis fishing up the old dark orb from out of the waters with the crescent of its curving beak, as the recoverer and savior of the drowning light. The moon was not looked upon as having any human likeness when it was imaged as or by the cat who saw in the dark, the hair that rose up by night and went around the horizon by leaps and bounds, the ibis as the returning bird of passage and messenger of the inundation, the frog that transformed from the tadpole, the old beetle that renewed itself in the earth to come forth as the young one, or the cow that gave birth to the child of light as her calf. The sun was not conceived as human in its nature. When the solar force at dawn was imaged by the lion-faced Atum, the flame of its surface by the fiery serpent Utai, the soul of its life by the hawk, the ram, or the crocodile, which are five Egyptian zootypes, and a fivefold disproof of the sun being conceived as or considered human in its nature or similitude. In beginning Ab Ovo, our first lesson is to learn something of the symbolical language of animals and to understand what it is they once said as zootypes. We have then to use that knowledge in simplifying the mysteries of mythology. This primitive language is still employed in diverse forms. It is extant in the so-called dead language of the hieroglyphics, the ideographs and pictographs and the totemic types and figures of tattoo in the portraiture of the nature powers which came to be divinized at length in the human likeness as the gods and goddesses of mythology, and in that language of the folk fables still made use of by the Bushmen, Hottentots, and other Africans, in which the jackal, the dog, the lion, the crane, the white vulture, and other beasts and birds keep on talking as they did in the beginning, and continue more or less to say in human speech, what they once said in the primitive symbolism. That is, they fulfill the same characters in the Marchen that were first founded in the mythos. It is now to be shown that the mythical mode of representing natural phenomena was based upon this primitive system of thought and expression, and how the things that were thought and expressed of old in this language continue the primary stratum of what is called mythology today. In the most primitive phase, mythology is a mode of representing certain elemental powers by means of living types that were superhuman, like the natural phenomena. The foundations of mythology and other forms of the ancient wisdom were laid in thus pre-anthropomorphic mode of primitive representation. Thus, to summarize a few of the illustrations, the typical giant Apup was an enormous water reptile, the typical genetrix and mother of life was a water cow that represented the earth. The typical twin brothers were the two birds or two beasts. The typical twin brother and sister were a lion and a lioness. The typical virgin was a heifer or a vulture. The typical messiah was a calf or a lamb or unboo the branch. 
The typical provider was a goose. The typical chief or leader is a lion. The typical artisan is a beetle. The typical physician is an ibis, which administered the enema to itself. The typical judge is a jackal or a cynocephalus, whose wig and collar are amusingly suggestive of the English law courts. Each and all of these and hundreds more preceded personification in the human image. The mighty infant who slew the dragon or strangled serpents while in his cradle was a later substitute for such a zootype as the little Ichunamon, a figure of Horus. Ichunamon was seen to attack the cobra di Capella and make the mortal enemy hide its head and shield its most vital parts within the protecting coils of its own body. For this reason, the lively, daring little animal was adopted as a zootype of Horus the young solar god, who in his attack upon the Apap serpent made the huge and deadly reptile hide its head in its own enveloping darkness. But when the figure is made anthropomorphic and the tiny conqueror is introduced as the little hero in human form, the beginning of the mythos and its meaning are obscured. The Ichunamon, the hawk, the ibis might attack the cobra, but it was well enough known that a child could not. Consequently, the original hero was not a child. Although spoken of as a child in the literalized marvels, miracles, and fables of the infancy. It is the present writer's contention that the wisdom of the ancients was the wisdom of Egypt, and that her explanation of the zootypes employed in sign language, totemism, and mythology holds good wherever the zootypes survive. For example, the Cowichan tribes say the moon has a frog in it, and with the Salish, Indians of Northwest America, the frog, or toad, in the moon is equivalent to our man in the moon. They have a tradition that the devouring wolf, being in love with the frog, or toad, pursued her with great ardor, and had nearly caught her when she made a desperate leap and landed safely in the moon, where she remained to this day. Wilson, Trans of Ethnol Society, 1866, New Series, Version 4, page 304. Which means that the frog, as a type of transformation, was applied to the changing moon, as well as to the Zulu girl, Chifolini. Sign language was from the beginning a substitution of similars for the purpose of expression by primitive or pre-verbal man, who followed the animals in making audible sounds accompanied and emphasized by human gestures. The same system of thought and mode of utterance were continued in mythology and totemism. Renouf says the scarabaeus was an object of worship in Egypt as a symbol of divinity. But this is the modern error. If there was a god and the beetle was his symbol, obviously it was not the divinity that was the object of worship, not the symbol, not the zootype. Ta, we know, was that divinity with the beetle as a type. And those who read the types were worshippers of the god and not of his symbol dung beetle, which was honored as a sign of transformation. When told that the Egyptians were worshippers of the bee, the mantis, and the grasshopper, we recall the words of Hor Apollo, who says that when the Egyptians would symbolize a mystic and one of the initiated, they delineate a grasshopper because the insect does not other sounds with its mouth but makes it chirping by means of its spine. B255. The grasshopper, then, which uttered a voice that did not come from its mouth, was a living type of superhuman power. And being an image of mystery and superhuman power, it was also considered a fitting symbol of Khan, the Bushman creator, or great spirit of creative mystery. Moreover, the grasshopper made his music and revealed his mystery in dancing and the religious mysteries of Khan were performed with dancing or in the grasshopper's dance. Thus, the initiates in the mysteries of the mantis are identical with the Egyptian mystae, symbolized by the grasshopper. And the dancing probably goes back to the time when pre-verbal man was an imitator of the grasshopper, which was a primitive type of mystery, like the transforming frog and the self-entering tortoise. There is a religious sect still extant in England who are known as the Jumpers, and their saltatory exercises still identify them with the leaping grasshoppers and the praying mantis and the mysteries of old. 
They still dance that dance. The moon belongs to the mantis, say the Bushmen, which goes to show that the mantis was not only a lunar type as the leap around the horizon, but on account of its power of transformation. And this again suggests the reason why the mantis should be the zootype of the mistai, who transformed in trance, as well as leaped and danced in the mysteries. The frog and the grasshopper were earlier leapers than the hare. These also were figures of the moon that leaped up in a fresh place every night. It was the leaping up of the light that was imitated in the dances of the Africans who jumped for joy at the appearance of the new moon, which they celebrated in the monthly dance, as did the Congo Negroes and other denizens of the dark continent, who danced the primitive mysteries and dramatized them in their dances. The leapers were the dancers, and the leaping mantis, the grasshopper, the frog, the hare, were amongst the pre-human prototypes. The frog is still known in popular weather wisdom as the prophesier of rain. As such, it must have been of vastly more importance in the burning lands of inner Africa. And there is reason to suppose that Hecat, the consort of Kunum, the king of frogs, was frog-headed as the prophetess or foreteller on this ground of natural fact. Herman says that the great men of the South, the privy councillors of the royal orders, were almost always invested, I know not why, with the office of prophet and the frog-headed goddess Heket. Life in Ancient Egypt, page 82, English translation. The frog was a prophet of rain in some countries and of springtime in others. In Egypt, it was the prophet of the inundation, hence Heket was a consort of Kunum the lord of inundation, the king of frogs. Heket was also the seer by night in the moon, as well as the crier for the waters and foreteller of their coming. From her, as seer in the dark, we may derive the names of the witch as the Hexi, the Hag, the Hagadis, and also that of the dark goddess Hecate, the sender of dreams. As prophesier of rain or of the inundation, it was the herald of a new life to the land of Egypt and this would be one reason for its relationship to the resurrection. But in making its transformation from the tadpole state to that of the frog, it was the figure of a still more important natural fact that in this mythology was applied the transformation and renewal of the moon and to the transformation of the mortal into an immortal in the eschatology, a type of Ta, who in one form is portrayed as the frog-headed god. This, in the mythology, was applied to the transformation and renewal of the moon, and to the transformation of the mortal into an immortal in the eschatology, a type of Ta, who in one form is portrayed as the frog-headed god. Lamps have been found in Egypt with the frog upon the upper part, and one is known which has the legend, I am the resurrection. Lanzon Desenario page 853, Budge, the Mummy, page 266. In this figure, the lamp is an equivalent for the rising sun, and the frog upon it is the type of Ta, who in his solar character was the resurrection and the life in the mythology before the image passed into the eschatology, in the spiritual sense. The frog was a type of transformation, and the frog-headed Ta made his transformation in Amenta to rise again as the opener of the nether earth. And as he represented the sun in Amenta, the frog, like the Cenocephalus of Memphis, writ chapter 42, was imaged as golden. Thus we find the sun in the lower earth of two depicted in the golden frog. And as stated by John Bell, the Lamas had an idea that the earth rested on a golden frog, and that when the frog stretched out its foot there was an earthquake. A journey from St. Petersburg to Peking in the year 1719. Pinkerton's Voyages, Volume 7, page 369. Here the frog beneath the earth, like the tortoise, is Egyptian, and as such we can learn what fact in nature was represented by it as a zootype of Ta in the netherworld, called the Earth of Eternity, where the typical tadpole that swam the waters made its transformation into the frog that stretched itself and set its foot on land. It is related in a Chinese legend that the lady Mrs. Chang No, 
obtained the drug of immortality by stealing it from Si Wang Nu, the royal mother of the West. With this she fled to the moon, and was changed into a frog that is still to be seen on the surface of the orb. Denny's Folklore of China, page 117. As Egyptian, the mother of the West was the goddess who received the setting sun and reproduced its light. The immortal liquor is the solar light. This was stolen from the moon. Chang No is equivalent to the frog-headed Hecate, who represented the resurrection. The frog in Egypt was a sign of myriads, as well as of transformation. In the moon it would denote myriads of renewals, when periodic repetition was a mode of immortality. Hecate, the frog-headed, is the original Cinderella. She makes her transformation into Sati, the Lady of Light, whose name is written with an arrow. Thus, to mention only a few of the lunar types, the goddess Hecate represented the moon and its transformation as the frog. Tot and his Sinocephalus represented the man and his dog in the moon. Osiris represented the lunar light in his character of the hair-headed Unnefer, the upspringing hair in the moon. These are Egyptian zootypes to be read wherever found by means of the Egyptian wisdom. Amongst other hieroglyphic signs in the language of animals, the head of a vulture signifies victory, doubtless because of the bird's keen scent for blood. The sheathen claw is a determinative of peaceful actions. The hinder part of the lioness denotes the great magical power. The tail of the crocodile is a sign for black and for darkness. An ape is the ideograph of rage and a fiery spirit or spirit of fire. The sparrow is a type of physical evil because of its destructive nature in thieving corn. Its name of tutu signifies a kind of plague or affliction in the fields. Birch. The water wagtail is the type of moral evil. This bird, as Wilkinson pointed out, is still called in Egypt the father of corruption, Abu Fasad. It was regarded as the type of an impure or wicked person on account of its assiduous suggestiveness of immoral motion. The extent to which morals and philosophy were taught by means of these living object pictures cannot now be measured. But the moralizing fables spoken as well as acted by the typical animals still offer testimony, and language is full of phrases which continue the zootypes into the world of letters. As when the greedy, filthy man is called a hog, the grumpy man a bear, the cunning one a fox, and the subtle and treacherous one a snake. In the folklore of various races, the human soul takes the form of a snake, a mouse, a swallow, a hawk, a pigeon, a bee, a jackal, or other animal, each of which was an Egyptian zootype of some power or soul in nature, before there was any representation of the human soul or ancestral spirit in the human form. Hence, we are told that when twins are born, the Batavians believe that one of the pair is a crocodile. Mr. Spencer accepts the belief and asks, May we not conclude that twins, of whom one gained the name of crocodile, gave rise to a legend which originated the monstrous belief? Data of Sociology, Chapter 22, Paragraph 175. But all such representations are mythical and are not to be explicated by the theory of monstrous belief. It is a matter of sign language. The Batavians knew as well as we do that no crocodile was ever born twin along with a human child. In this instance, the poor things were asserting in their primitive way that man is born with or as a soul. This the Gnosis enables us to prove. One of the earliest types of the sun as a soul of life in the water is a crocodile. We see the mother who brings forth a crocodile when the goddess Neith is portrayed in human shape as the suckler of the young crocodiles hanging at her breasts. Neith is the wet nurse personified whose child was the young sun god. As Sebek, he was imaged by the crocodile that emerged from the waters at sunrise. Sebek was at once the child and the crocodile brought forth by the great mother in the mythology. And because the crocodile had imaged a soul of life in water as a superhuman power, it became a representative in sign language of the human soul. We see the same type of a soul in external nature applied to the human soul in the Book of the Dead, when the Osiris in the netherworld exclaims, I am the crocodile in the form of a man. 
that is, as a soul of which the crocodile had been a symbol, as soul of the sun. It was thus the crocodile was born with the child, as a matter of sign language, not as belief. The crocodile is commonly recognized by the Congo natives as a type of soul. Miss Kingsley tells of a witch doctor who administered emetics to certain of his patients and brought away young crocodiles. She relates that a witch doctor had been opened after death when a winged lizard-like thing was found in his inside, which Batanga said was his power, the power being another name for his soul. Mr. Spencer not only argues for the actuality of these beliefs concerning natural facts, supposed to have been held by primitive men and scientific Egyptians, which vanished with a true interpretation of the mythical mode of representation. He further insists that there seems to be ample justification for the belief that any kind of creature may be transformed into any other, because of the metamorphosis observed in the insect world or elsewhere, from which there resulted the theory of metamorphosis in general, and the notion that things of all kinds may suddenly change their forms. Man, of course, included. Data, Chapter 8, Paragraph 55. But there was no evidence throughout all nature to suggest that any kind of creature could be transformed into any other kind. On the contrary, nature showed them that the frog was a tadpole continued, that the chrysalis was the prior status of the butterfly, and that the old moon changed into the new. The transformation was visible and invariable, and the product of transformation was always the same in kind. There was no sign or suggestion of an unlimited possibility in metamorphosis. Neither was there ever a race of savages who did think or believe, in the words of Mr. Spencer, that any kind of creature may be transformed into any other, no more than there were ever boys who believed that any kind of bird could lay any other kind of bird's eggs. There are two good observers for any such self-delusion as that. Mythical representation did not begin with stories of human adventure, as Mr. Spencer puts it, nor with human figures at all, but with the phenomena of external nature that were represented by means of animals, birds, reptiles, and insects, which had demonstrated the possession of superhuman faculties and powers. The origin of various superstitions and customs seemingly insane can be traced to sign language. In many parts of England, it is thought necessary to tell the bees when a death has occurred in the house and to put the hives into mourning. The present writer has known the housewife to sally forth into the garden with a warming pan and key and stripes to crepe to tell the bees, lest they should take flight when one of the inmates of the house had died. We must seek an explanation for this in the symbolism of Egypt that was carried forth orally to the ends of the earth. The bee was anciently a zootype of the soul which was represented and issuing forth from the body in that form or under that type. There is a tradition that the bee alone of all animals descended from paradise. In the Engadine, Switzerland, it is said that the souls of men go forth from this world and return to it in the form of bees. Virgil, in the fourth book of the Georgics, celebrates the bee that never dies but ascends alive into heaven. That is the typical bee, which was an image of the soul. It was the soul as bee that alone ascended into heaven or descended from thence. The bee is certainly one form of the Egyptian abate or bird fly, which is a guide and pilot to the souls of the dead on their way to the fields of Aru. It was a figure of lower Egypt as the land of honey, thence a fitting guide to the celestial fields of the Aru paradise. It looks as if the name for the soul, Ba, in Egyptian, may be identical with our word bee. Ba is honey determined by the bee sign, and Ba is also the soul. The Egyptians made use of honey as a means of embalming the dead. Thus the bee, as a zootype of the soul, became a messenger of the dead and a mode of communication with the ancestral spirits. Talking to the bees in this language was like speaking with the spirits of the dead and, as it were, commending the departed one to the guidance of the bees, who, as honey-gatherers, naturally knew the way to the Eleusian fields and the meads of amaranth that flowed with milk and honey. 
The type is confused with the soul when the bee is invoked as follows, almost as if requesting the soul of the departed to watch forever over the living. Gubernatus, Zoological Myth, Volume 2, page 218. In the ritual, the abate, or as bee or bird fly, is the conductor of souls to the celestial fields. When the deceased is asked who conducted him thither, he replies, It was the abate deity who conducted me. He also explains, Hail to thee, who fliest up to heaven to give light to the stars. Chapter 76, Renouf. Here, the bee or bird fly is a solar type, and that which represented the ascending sun in the mythology became a type of the soul in the eschatology. Thus, the inventor of honey in this world led the way to the fields of flowers in the next. Modern popular superstition to a large extent is the ancient symbolism in its second childhood. Here is a case in point. The cock having been a representative of soul or spirit, it is pure to be said that the human soul has entered the cock by a kind of reincarnation. Hence we read of a legacy left to a fowl by a wealthy lady named Silva of Lisbon, who held that the fowl of her dead husband survived in a cock. Daily Mail, May 26, 1892. So it has been with the zootypes of other elemental souls that were continued for the human soul, from the crocodile of the Batavians to the red mouse of the Germans. Folklore is full of fables that originated in this language of signs. The jackal in the Egyptian representation is the guide of the sun upon its pathway in Amenta, who takes up the young child Horus in his arms to carry him over the waters. In the Hottentot prototype, the jackal finds the sun in the form of a little child and takes him upon his back to carry him. When the sun grew hot, the jackal shook himself and said, Get down. But the sun stuck fast and burnt the jackal, so that he has a long black stripe down his back to this day. Bleak, Reynard, page 67. The same tale is told of the coyote or prairie dog who takes the place of the jackal in the mythical legends of the red men. In the ritual, the jackal who carried Horus, the young sun god, had become the bearer and supporter of souls. In passing the place where the dead fall into darkness, the Osiris says, Aput raiseth me up, chapter 44. And when the overwhelming waters of the deluge burst forth, he rejoices, saying, Anup is my bearer, writ, chapter 64. Here, as elsewhere, the mythical type extant with the earlier Africans has passed into the eschatology of the Egyptians. The eternal contest betwixt the powers of light and darkness is also represented in the African folktales. The hare, or rabbit, Kalulu, and the Zimwi are two of the contending characters. The hare, as in Egypt, is typical of the good power, and no doubt is a zootype of the young, upspringing moon. The Zwimi, is the evil power, like Apap, the giant, the ogre, the swallower of the waters or the light. Werner, African Folklore, Contempt Rev, September 1896. It is very cunning, but in the end is always outwitted by the hare. When the Zwimi kills or swallows the hare's mother, it is the dragon of darkness, or eclipse, devouring the lunar light. The moon mythos is indefinitely older than the solar and the earliest slayer of the dragon was Lunar, the mother of the young child of light. Here she is killed by the Zwimi. Then Kalulu comes with a barbed arrow, with which he pierces the Zwimi through the heart. This is the battle of Ra and Apap, or Horus and Sut, in the most primitive form, when as yet the powers were rendered non-anthropomorphically. Again, the monkey who was transformed into a man is a prototype of the moon god Tat, who is a dog-headed ape in one character and a man in another. A young person refuses several husbands. A monkey then comes along. The beast takes the skin off his body and is changed into a man. To judge from the Egyptian mythos, the young person was lunar, and the monkey changing into a man is the lunar likewise. One of the two won the Lady of Light in the moon. This was the monkey that became a man, as did the bear in Beauty and the Beast. In another tale, obviously Looney Solar, that is with the sun and moon as the characters, a girl, 
that is the moon, refused a husband, that is the sun. Thereupon she married a lion, that is the solar type. In other words, the moon and the sun were married in Amenta. This tale is told with primitive humor. When the wedded pair were going to bed, she would not undress unless he let her cut off his tail. For this remained unmetamorphosed when he transformed into a man. When she found out that he was a lion, she ran away from that husband. So in a Hindu story, a young woman refuses to marry the son because he is too fiery hot. Even in the American Negro stories of Br'er Rabbit, Br'er Fox, Br'er Wolf, and Br'er Terrapin, the original characters of the typical animals are still preserved as they were in the Egyptian mythology when divinized. The turtle or tortoise, the wise and sagacious one, is the hider. The fox, like the jackal, Anup, is the cunning one. The wolf is the swallower. And the rabbit equates with the hare, a type of the god Osiris or of the African Kalulu. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.